0: Amen, amen Mark chapter eight, page seven oh five is where we 're going to be and so I want you to, to think with me for a minute as we get ready to open the scriptures have you Have you ever had a moment where your inadequacies have become painfully obvious to you? you know one of those moments where you 've just been blindsided by your own weaknesses and so I think about this moment I was twenty one years old, uh, I just got my first job, I was weeks away from graduating college, and in so many ways, it was kind of my dream job. I was hired by the university that i just Uh, kind of spent the last four years studying at, and I was gonna get to launch uh, this brand new campus ministry. I was gonna get to build a team, cast a vision, set the spiritual direction for the student body, and I I remember just kind of being so excited. I don't know if you've ever had uh, one of these opportunities where you get a job, and the moment you get the job, you know you're underqualified for it. And so I'm sitting there in, you know, the, the interview process and I'm making promises that even a politician wouldn't make. You know, what I'm saying, this is what we're gonna do and this is how the Lord's gonna change the campus. And then I remember walking out of the interview going, Oh God, what have I just said? Like, Lord, will you help this come to me? And so I remember sitting down the first day at this new job and just all of my insecurities just begin to flow because I realize I have no idea what I'm doing. And maybe you remember this from your first job or maybe some of you are experiencing this now or you'll experience this in the years to come. But I remember sitting at a desk. I hadn't even bought a computer yet. I didn't have anything to do. I'm there the first day and I go, what am I supposed to do? And since it was a ministry job and I didn't know what I was supposed to do, I thought I'll go buy a Bible. I already owned a Bible, but I thought I'll just go buy another Bible. So I went and bought a Bible and then a day planner that I immediately lost. So it served me you know, very poorly, it didn't do me any good. And then I sat down for the second hour of my new job, just oh overwhelmed by how inadequate I was. And so what do you do when you feel inadequate with your job? You do what every red-blooded American does, you fake it. And so I faked it for the next two or three weeks, and I just hoped that no, no one would discover that I was this imposter just faking my way through this new ministry. So a few weeks go by, and some of my colleagues who I know and love very well. We're very good friends now. But at the time, they were kind of frustrated that uh, the school had hired me to do this job that I wasn't qualified for. And so they, they, they went to my boss and they had this kind of little covert meeting and said, hey, we love Dave. He's a great guy, but he is 21. He is too young. He is too inexperienced. He's not smart enough. He's not a good, a good enough leader. He cannot do the job that you just hired him to do. You need to rethink this. And what they didn't know was one of the guys who was sitting in the meeting was one of my best friends who used to be my uh, former roommate. And for some reason, he thought it would be a good idea to call me as soon as the meeting was done. And for some reason, he thought this would encourage me. But he, he gets out of the meeting and said, you have no idea what everybody's saying about you. They think you're too young and you're not experienced enough and you don't have enough leadership. And, and they're just telling me all these things and I'm trying to hold it together. And as soon as I hang up the phone, I did what every 21-year-old man does. I got on the floor and cried like a woman. I just, that's offensive to women. I cried like a child, you know, just, just wept. Like, God, why do you hate me? Why have you given me this job? I'm cursed, you know, just, you've been in those moments, right? And isn't it amazing how when you come face-to-face with your own inadequacies, you immediately begin to doubt the sufficiency of God. When you really just see yourself in the midst of all your weaknesses, like you really begin to doubt, you know, maybe God could use me, but God probably won't use me. And I remember feeling that in that moment and walking into my boss's office and saying, hey, I heard there's a little meeting today. And I heard there were some things that were said and I'll never forget, he looked across his desk and he said, what, what did you hear? I said that I'm too young and too inexperienced and that I can't do this job and I'll never forget the words he said to me. He looked at me and he says, Dave, you know that they are absolutely right. I thought, what? Like, that's the worst pep talk ever. Like Even my boss thinks I'm underqualified. And, and then he looked at me and he says, he says, they're absolutely right. You're too young, you're too inexperienced. You don't know what you're doing. He says, but the reason I hired you it's not because of what I think you can do, but it's because of what I deeply believe God can do through you. And he says, I'm betting the farm on the fact that God can do through you more than you could ever ask or imagine. And It was one of those moments where a, a good friend was speaking real truth to me, but truth that I couldn't believe because my inadequacies had so blindsided me. Trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus to use me or to move through me was more than I could handle. And I go, have you, have you ever been here? Have you ever been in one of these places where you've been so confronted with your own inadequacy, it's hard to believe that even God, the God of resurrection, the God of redemption could do anything with you? Have you ever been in one of these places where you get into the marriage and and you go, you know, okay, I thought I knew everything there was to know about men, I thought everything I knew there, there was to know about women, and you get married and you realize how little you know? And you really begin to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus to put together and pull together what Jesus can put together and pull together? or you get into that new job, or you get into that new ministry, or you step off uh, kind of the the ledge and you take that new step of faith. And then almost instantly after seeing the vision that God has given you come face to face with your own inadequacy. And have you ever been there? And have you ever noticed the ways in which your inadequacies will test what it is that you really believe about the sufficiency of Jesus. And this is what we continue to discover as we come to Mark chapter eight. If you've been with us the last three or four weeks, we've seen the disciples week after week after week, they're getting this crash course in their own inadequacies and in the sufficiency of Jesus. And so Jesus keeps inviting them into these situations that they can't possibly manage under their own strength. They find themselves in the midst of a storm that they can't calm. They find themselves face-to-face with a demon-possessed man that they can't liberate. They find themselves face-to-face with a girl who has just died that they can't resurrect with, face-to-face with religious hearts that they can't seem to manage. And over and over and over, the disciples are discovering just the depths of their inadequacy and the brilliance of Jesus' sufficiency. And once again, in Mark chapter eight, Jesus is gonna put the disciples in a situation where they discover we cannot do what Christ has asked us to do. Our supply cannot meet his demand. Our natural ability cannot fulfill his supernatural request upon our life. And they've got a choice to make. And I love this moment in Mark chapter 8, because as they come face to face with their inadequacy, Jesus never looks at them and gives them the you can do it speech. He doesn't give them a self-help book. Instead, Jesus gives them a clearer picture of himself. Because Jesus knows the only thing that will actually encourage An inadequate heart is a clear picture of a sufficient Christ. Jesus knows the only thing that can really steady your inadequate heart is a clear picture of a sufficient Christ. And so Mark begins to give us his story, again, of what Christ has done. So look back with me at verse one. I love the way that this story starts, and I want us to just let the story wash over us this evening, and then I want us to notice two simple things as we get ready to take communion together. So I love the way the story starts. It says, during those days, another large crowd gathered around Jesus and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now I love this moment where Mark is giving us a glimpse of the miracle that takes place before the miracle. And so the obvious miracle in this story is the moment where Jesus takes seven pieces of bread and a couple old fish and Jesus heals or feeds the multitudes. But the miracle that happens before that miracle is unbelievable to me, but we have to kind of stop long enough to notice it. In verse one, it says thousands of people are gathering around Jesus. If you go back to the end of Mark chapter seven, Mark gives us a glimpse as to where this miracle's taking place. And he says, this miracle is taking place in a region of the world during the days of Jesus known as the Decapolis. It was kind of this collection of 10 cities in the Gentile world. It was known for kind of their paganism. It was not necessarily a very spiritually rich place. It was not the place you'd expect to see a revival. It would be like Mark starting this story in our times by saying, and in those days, Jesus and his disciples were surrounded by thousands of people in the red light district of Amsterdam. And for three days, the crowds hung on Jesus's every word so I love the, the way that the story starts. It's not in the, the religious Mecca of Jerusalem. It's not in the Bible Belt of Nashville, Tennessee. It is in the desert region outside of the Decapolis that, that the person and the work and the spirit of God is awakening the hearts of people that had never tasted his goodness. It says for three days they gathered around him. And Mark is giving us a picture. It is the miracle that happens before the miracle, but he doesn't stop there. It says it's in the midst of this gathering that the compassion of Jesus begins to spill out. I want you to notice this in verses two and three. You get a really clear picture of who Jesus is and just how far his disciples still have to go when it comes to being like Jesus. And so look back at verse two. It says that Jesus turns to his disciples and he he looks out, there's this crowd of thousands of people in the midst of the desert hanging on his every word, people that didn't grow up in church. This, This miracle is unfolding. And Jesus turns to his disciples, he says, I wanna give you a picture of God's heart for these people. He says, I have compassion for them. And this is, this is a key word, I don't know if you write in your Bible or circle in your Bibles, but you should underline this word compassion because it means to suffer with, to suffer with someone. This is, this is a huge idea, it's an important word because Jesus doesn't look at these people and he doesn't extend sympathy he doesn't just give, him, give them his, his good feelings, and he doesn't even extend empathy. He doesn't look at the disciples and say, hey, I know what it's like to be hungry because at one point in my life I was hungry. It says, no, he gives them compassion. In other words, he's in it with them. He's suffering with them, and this is the picture that you get of Jesus over and over and over, that he never does ministry at arm's length, that he always gets into the mess, that he always gets into the middle, And Mark, all throughout his gospel, is giving us these little foreshadowing moments of a Christ who is suffering with the people here in the desert, but one day he will suffer for them ultimately as he hangs for them on a cross. And if you wanna understand the compassion of Jesus, the words that he's speaking in this moment start ringing true in the hearts of the disciples. Have compassion for these people. And it's the miracle before the miracle. The crowds have gathered. The compassion of Jesus is stirring. But the oblivious nature of the disciples to me here is startling. Now, you have to kind of read into the story to understand this. So uh, tonight when you go home, I'd encourage you to go back and read the feeding of the 5,000 that took place in Mark chapter 6. There's some really interesting parallels, but there's also some really unique differences. And so uh, we read this a few weeks ago when Jesus fed the 5,000. That story took place. In the region, of, um, uh, in the region uh, that the disciples grew up in, where they were from, people that thought like them, talked like them, worshiped like them, it was in the region of Galilee that they were very accustomed to. Those people were their people. And so, if you remember the story in Mark chapter six, when, when Jesus is teaching the people, after about eight hours of teaching, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, look at all of these hungry people. What's the plan for meeting their needs? And what you begin to see is that in Mark chapter six, the disciples were very good at loving people that were like them. But you get to Mark chapter eight when they're surrounded by people that don't think like them, that don't look like them, don't don't worship like them. And they've now just spent three days with them in the desert, these hungry people, and the disciples have yet to clue in on the fact that they're hungry, completely oblivious. And this week, I was just reading this. And I went, man, isn't this in so many ways a picture of American Christianity? Disciples gathered around the person of Christ, oblivious to the needs of the people around them. I was talking to one of our homeless sisters a couple of weeks ago, and she's been homeless in the last several years, and she said, one of the most difficult things about being homeless in Nashville is every year watching homeless people die on the steps of our churches. I thought, man, isn't, isn't that a tragic picture? People with hopelessness dying on the very place designed to bring hope. And Mark is giving us a picture. It's so layered. Don't let this story just be black and white. Don't let it just be another Bible story. He's saying the crowds have gathered, the, the, the compassion of Jesus is unfolding. That The disciples are oblivious. And I love the conversation that unfolds. Look back at verse four and five with me. Jesus had just cast vision. He says, I'm compassionate. I wanna do something for these people. And the disciples respond, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, let's just pause for a minute. If, if you've been with us for any length of time, as the reader, as people removed for 2,000 years, isn't there a part of you that just wants to go, come on, <laughs> like, how do you miss this? Come on, disciples, where do you get the bread? Jesus, Right? Do you remember what he did a month ago? 5,000 people, five loaves of bread, two fish? There were leftovers, now you have seven loaves of bread. What can he do with seven loaves of bread? I mean, if he could do that with five. And from arm's length, you know, from 2,000 years distance, isn't it easy to judge these guys and these gals and to go, how can you forget this? But I go, have you ever been guilty of having spiritual amnesia? Man, I have. You know those moments where you have seen the power and the presence and the provision of God and then 30 minutes later, you hit another hardship and you immediately forget that he's with you. Have you ever had one of those moments on a Sunday night where you're just like singing your guts out, God, you're faithful and you're pretty. God, you can do anything. And then then you get in the car and you have that one little hiccup with your schedule and all of a sudden you think God has abandoned you. It's not just us who are guilty of spiritual amnesia. I mean, you see this all throughout the scriptures. I love reading the Psalms. You know, on one page, you'll be reading the poetry of David, and he's like, God, you're so good, you're so near. I lay in my bed at night and think about you, Lord. And then you turn one page, and it's like, God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you hate me? Why have you rejected me? And I Isn't this the human experience? I was thinking about this on Thursday night. My, my wife, Sydney, had gone to Arkansas to take care of her grandmother who is 95 years old and her health is declining. And so Sydney was there for three days and uh, she took our youngest son Judah with her because he's still nursing. And she left our two oldest with me, Micah, who's four, Jack, who's two. And for three days, we just had the most epic bro weekend. I mean, you know, we love kind of these like little man weekends. We're just going to break all the rules. We're going to eat terrible food. We're going to watch too much TV. We're going to wrestle with our shirts off. We're going to go on adventures. We're going to, we're just going to kind of live it up for the glory of God and the good of fatherhood, right? So, So Thursday, the the bro weekend began, and uh, I pick up my boys, and we're going to their little t-ball practice, and I'm like, guys, we got an adventure. Got a treat for you. Got T-Ball. And then after T-Ball, we're going to your favorite restaurant, which is Satco, because they love the queso. And I'm not even going to make you eat anything else. You can just eat queso if you want. And and then after the queso, uh, we're going to have a treat. I'm going to take you for a treat. And so we go to Satco, and they're just, they are crushing this queso like it's the end of the world. I mean, just just downing it. And they're they're, they're eating it like there's no tomorrow. And then afterwards, uh, we walk next door to Ben and Jerry's, because you've got to finish off chips and cheese with ice cream. And so we, we, it's, it's a rule, you know, we go next door and I buy these kids the biggest ice cream cones, their little four-year-old and two-year-old hands have ever had, packed with chocolate ice cream. And if you've never eaten ice cream with kids, you've never lived, because they don't eat it. They apply it like war paint. I mean, it is, it is all over their face. It's dripping down their hands. It's on the table and, and they're eating it. And I kid you not, real moment, I cannot make this stuff up, 30 seconds after Micah has finished eating his ice cream cone, covered in ice cream, he looks at me and he says, "'Hey, Dad, are you still gonna give us a treat?' <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, the ice cream hasn't even dried on your face. Like, the treat is still wet on your face. It's all over, you know, like, a treat. I'm your father, that's treat enough, but I've given you cheese dip and ice cream. That's, that's the treat. And I'm, I'm having this moment with my kids and, and the Lord just went, Dave, that's you. That's you. You'll see my goodness, you'll see my power, you'll see my provision, you'll see me feed the thousands, and then a month later, you're in the same predicament. God, where are you? And I love the humanity of this story. There's the miracle before the miracle, there's the compassion of Jesus, there's the oblivious reality of the disciples. There's this overwhelming moment where they panic and they don't know what to do. And I want you to notice the kindness of Jesus despite that all. Look at this, verse five. He says, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit on the ground and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And they distributed them among the people and they did so. And then they had a few small fish as well and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them also. And the people ate and they were abundantly satisfied. And there's this moment that starts out where the disciples have this face-to-face revelation of their own inadequacy. And they leave the day once again, seeing Jesus's sufficiency. And I want us to wrestle with both of those revelations for just a minute. Because I think so often as we follow Christ in this journey of faith, it almost always begins with the revelation of our inadequacy. And that's not to to press you down, that's not to, to, to make you feel bad. I think there's this moment where our inadequacies are revealed, and Jesus does not do that to make you feel bummed out. I think our adequacies are revealed to liberate us. Because Jesus knows it's not until we see ourselves as we really are that we can find comfort in who he actually is. And so let's wrestle with this for a minute, this this revelation of their inadequacy. Jesus comes to them with this vision. He says, I have compassion for these people. I wanna do something about their needs. And what comes into their minds, what comes into their hearts, what comes into their lives right after they see Jesus' vision for these hungry people? First thing that springs into their minds is their own inadequacy. They immediately have a thousand reasons why Jesus cannot use them to do what Jesus has just declared that He's gonna do. And I go, Have you ever been here before? Have you ever been in one of those moments where God just like reveals his heart? Like maybe you're at work and you see that single mom and you know that God is not just calling you to be her coworker. You know that God is calling you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in her life, but as soon as you get to know her, as soon as you get to hear her story, you realize that her needs far exceed your ability to meet them. Have you ever had a moment where you met a new friend and you immediately realized that their emotional needs were greater than your ability to meet them? Have you ever prayed for someone who was so sick that if God did not intervene, they would die? And in the moment, you knew that your supply could not meet the demand of the situation. Isn't this a helpless place to be? Isn't it a helpless place to be in one of these moments where you see the vision of God for the world and then you're immediately confronted with your own inadequacies? And I love this because the disciples keep having to learn the same lesson. They keep learning the same lesson that their natural abilities can never fulfill um, Jesus' supernatural demands. Their natural abilities can never fulfill Jesus' supernatural demands because they were never designed to. And Jesus isn't pressing them down here. Jesus is trying to liberate them because he knows that if the disciples try to do the work of God with the strength of men, it will always leave them upside down. He knows if these ordinary people run into the work of God and do it with their strength and their energy, they'll burn out. They'll be overwhelmed. They can't accomplish it. I go, have you ever tried to bring God's mission and God's vision to life out of your own strength? So Jesus is doing them a favor. He gives them his vision and immediately they realize how inadequate they are. They can't do it. And so Jesus keeps making it a little clearer. Look back at verse five with me. He says, what do you have? And this is the point in the story that is almost comical at best and depressing at worst. They come to Jesus They say, Jesus, we have seven pieces of bread and a few fish. Think about how depressing this moment would have been. 4,000 people, they come to Christ, seven pieces of bread and a few fish. Think about the story for a moment. Where have they been for three days? They've been in the desert. How dry and stale and crusty and dirty would this bread have been? Jesus says, What do you have? crusty, stale, nasty bread. That's all I've got. Do you have enough for 4,000? No, just, we have seven. <laughs> oh, seven, seven pieces of stale bread. What else do you have? Well, I have some fish. Sydney and I have this life rule that we want to eat seafood when you can see the sea. Like, I don't want to eat seafood in Oklahoma. Like, There's something about seafood that is better when you're near the ocean, right? It's where seafood was meant to eat. You would not eat seafood that had been left out on your kitchen counter for five hours in an air-conditioned room. Can you imagine eating seafood that had been carried through the desert for three days in the pocket of a little boy? For years, I was always like, "How'd how'd they find the fish? And I go, they probably smelled it. There's nothing that smells worse than rotten fish. There there is nothing worse than rotting fish. And Jesus says, I want to feed the multitudes. And the disciples go, all we have is crusty, stale bread and rotten fish. And here's this moment where they've been overwhelmed by the vision of Jesus. And they've been absolutely underwhelmed by a vision of themselves. And have you ever been there? Have you ever been in one of those places where you knew God was calling you to do something and you stood before your maker and all you had was the stale bread and the rotten fish of your life? Jesus, I know you're calling me, but I've got a marriage that's failing. Jesus, I know you're calling me, but I've got kids that are rebelling. Jesus, I know that you're calling me, but I've, I've got a sexual history that I'm not proud of. Jesus, I know that you're calling me, but I can't speak or I can't lead or I can't do. Have you ever had one of these moments where your heart has been touched by the vision of Jesus, but your mind has been paralyzed by the inadequacy of who you are? And here's the revelation that the disciples have, that what they have is not enough. And I love it, because in this moment, Jesus doesn't give them the you can do it speech, and he doesn't give them another Joel Osteen book, and he doesn't kind of pep them up he understands that the only thing that will satisfy their inadequate hearts is a picture of his sufficiency. And I love the revelation that they get of Jesus. He takes the stale bread, he takes the rotting fish, he thanks his heavenly Father, and just like God has been doing since the very beginning, he makes something out of nothing. He makes something beautiful out of something that smells terrible. He makes a feast out of a place that was once a famine. And the result is that everyone around them ate and they were fully satisfied. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been one of the disciples in this moment, this revelation of Jesus? Because once again, they keep discovering over and over and over that Jesus never asked them to give him what they don't have. And this is a huge point. You've got to hear this. This is, this is a kingdom axiom. This is a kingdom principle that Jesus never asked the disciples to give him what they do not have. And so Jesus doesn't come to them and say, listen, guys, here's the vision. 4,000 hungry people. We've got to find some fish. We've got to find some bread. We've got to find some wine. Or for those of you that grew up in Baptist churches, we've got to find some grape juice. You know, We've got to find some food to feed them. Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, hey, do you have any contacts from the fishing business? Someone that could hook us up with a wholesale discount and get these people some fish. Hey, Thomas, do you have a hookup on some bread? Bartholomew, do you have a hookup on some wine? No. He looks at him and he says, what do you have? What do you have? And what the disciples are beginning to discover is that Jesus plus anything is more than enough. Jesus plus their scarcity is more than enough. (laughs) Jesus plus their brokenness is more than enough. Jesus plus their doubt is more than enough. Jesus plus anything is more than enough. And Jesus is not interested in them bringing something they don't have. Jesus wants them to entrust him with what they do have. And you see this picture of Christ, who is a Christ who is not looking for a group of self-sufficient people. He's looking for a group of fully surrendered people. And there is a big difference. I think so often we live in the comfort zones of our own ability. And when we live in the comfort zones of our own ability, we insulate ourselves from the very places in which God is trying to do his greatest work. Because it's not until we come to the end of ourselves that we really begin to see the Lord at work And so Jesus keeps bringing them in, into the storm, into the graveyard, into the demon-possessed house, into the room where the girl has just passed away, into the religious temple full of people's hearts that are far from them. And over and over and over, Jesus is gonna look at the disciples and he's gonna say, you don't have what it takes, but I do. (laughs) Are you willing to trust me with what you have? And I think this is one of the areas where the Holy Spirit was really convicting me this week. So often in my life, I have used what I don't have as an excuse for not giving Jesus what I do have. And some of you are right there in this place. You know God has put a vision on your life. You know God has called you to something. And right now, all you're giving Jesus in return is a thousand reasons why you are not the person to do what Jesus has asked you to do. And so we kind of live in this world, don't we, we, where we go, hey, Jesus, one day when I have more time, I'll serve. When I have more money, I'll give. When I have more wisdom, I'll make disciples. When I have this, when I have this. And what is it that we discover about the someday? It's that the someday never comes. And the reality is that Jesus never asks you for the someday, he asks you for the day. And the disciples find themselves standing before the Lord and this unbelievable need, and they've come face-to-face with this reality that their supply can never meet the demand, that their natural abilities can never fulfill his supernatural request. And they keep discovering that Jesus is not surprised by that. He says, what do you have? Jesus, just this stale bread and this rotten fish, and Jesus says, it is enough. It is enough to see the power and the presence of God touch down. I go, this is one of those stories where on the surface it feels so irrelevant because we're not gonna leave here tonight. You're not gonna be confronted with 4,000 people on the banks of the Cumberland River who are dying for a meal. You're not gonna feed them with a miraculous can of tuna fish. You know, This is not gonna be one of those stories where you walk out of here and immediately put it into practice, right? At least literally but I believe that this story is a microcosm of every person's journey of faith because over and over and over, this is what happens. God gives us little glimpses into his heart and then almost always immediately we're confronted with our inability to bring about his vision and then the Lord will stand before us and he'll say, well, will you trust me with what you have? And you'll stand there before the Lord. All I've got is stale bread and rotten fish and he says, I know, it's perfect. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And within the context of every generation, there are men and women who step into the promises of God with their stale bread and their rotting fish. And within the context of every generation, there are people that forfeit the promises of God because they never believe that God is big enough to do something with their stale bread and their rotten fish. I go, which person will you be? Who will you be? Think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story in Numbers chapter 13 and 14? God comes to them, and there's this really key phrase that he says in chapter 13. He says, I want you to send 12 spies into the land that I have already given you It's a done deal, it's already yours. And I'm convinced that God was sending the 12 spies in so they could see the land for what it was and that they could then come back as cheerleaders for the rest of the group and go, man, look how amazing God is. But if you've read the scriptures, maybe you know the way that the story goes. They go in and instead of seeing the sufficiency of God, they're overwhelmed by their own human inadequacies. And these 12 spies who were designed to be, to be the cheerleaders for the people of God, they come back and they begin to immediately spread fear. And they say, man, everything was just as God told us it would be, but we can't possibly do it. And you see a generation that forfeits the promises of God because they can't get beyond their own inadequacy. Or do you remember the story of Moses? I love the story of Moses. You know, we've kind of made him this like superhero, man of the faith. He's the most normal dude ever in so many ways. And yet he, he kept walking with the Lord and trusting the Lord. And I, love, I love the story of Moses. God comes to Moses and he reveals his vision, his compassion for the people of Egypt. Hey, I wanna liberate these people. And what does Moses immediately do? He gives God a thousand reasons why God has chosen the wrong man for the job. He says, God, I am not the person for the job. I am not a good speaker. I am not a good leader. I am not a holy man. And Moses is just telling God, here are all the things that I am not. And I love it because God never gives Moses so you can do it speech. He knew. He knew that Moses was inadequate. Moses says, God, I'm not what you think I am. And God looks at Moses and he says, I am everything you're not. I am everything you're not. This has never been about you. This has never been about you. But I want you to be a part of the miracle. I want you to feel the miracle pass through your life. And I want it to happen in such a way that you will never confuse this moment with your sufficiency, but instead you'll know that it's mine. You know, can you imagine what would happen if we as a church just came before the Lord and said, okay, God, we are surrounded by an overwhelming need in our own city, in our own country, in the world. Like the, the need, your heart for the world is so big, we understand that our supply can never meet your demand. But God, here's what we do have. <laughs> here's the stale bread and the rotten fish of our life. Here's a little bit of money, here's a little bit of time, here's a little bit of talents. Here's the brokenness from my past, here's the frustration of my own story. God, here's, here's what I have, here's what I have. Can you imagine what would happen? we came to the Lord and we understood that the miracle was never dependent on us but that it can flow through us you know, how amazing to be a part of that story every generation gets to choose and I go, what, which kind of generation are you and I going to be so here's a question that I want us to wrestle with as we go to communion here's a question that I want us to wrestle with as we go into the week it's the same question that Jesus asked the disciples what do you have What do you have? What do you have? What do you have? And do you believe that Jesus is big enough to do something great in the world with your still bread and your rotten fish? Let's pray. Father, thank you for...